Jewish audio on Chabad.org. All right, Megillah Esther, Pedi Gimel, chapter 3. Today we are going to begin at verse 8. And the title of tonight, today's class is The Final Solution, or Making the Case for the Final Solution. So let me begin with a short preamble, and I'll present the thesis, and then we'll study the Megillah and see how it unfolds. Most people consider themselves to be good people or nice people. Would you agree? Does it make a difference? If you ask most people, are you a nice person? Of course I'm a nice person. You're a good person? Of course I'm good. How many people will say, I'm a horrible person. I'm a, I'm a hateful person. I'm a xenophobe, racist. I want to kill everything and anything that walks. Most people won't say that. Very few people. And even people who actually believe in that, they don't think that they're bad. They'll tell you that they're doing a good thing. So in any kind of final solution, and unfortunately our people have known too many, what's going to be necessary is somebody who makes the case for it. And in making the case, you're going to have to do two things. Number one, you're going to have to give an explanation for why this isn't a bad thing to do, why this is actually a good thing to do. So it's how you word it. If you word it nicely enough and eloquently enough, say, no, that, that sounds pretty good. A few examples. Uh, recently in Canada, they passed a law legalizing murder. If somebody wants to die, no problem. You say, please kill me. And the doctor, whose job used to be to give life, now can say, with pleasure, and pull the trigger. I'm sorry, I mean pull the syringe. Now, if doctors were all equipped with uh, magnums at their, at their hip, and they would go into a room and somebody says, I'm feeling really dead low and miserable, and, and anyway, it looks like I have a month left, please blow my brains out, that would not go over very well. No, the Supreme Court couldn't get away with that. So what did they do? They created a law, and the law is called quality of life. Who could be against quality of life? Quality of life. There are many people who want to outlaw Brit Milah. They don't talk about outlawing Jewish practice. They talk about protecting children. Who could be against protecting children? Protecting the innocent. There are people who actively aid and abet terrorism. But nobody wants to aid and abet terrorism. How could you sell that? You call them freedom fighters. I'm aiding and abetting. I'm enabling freedom for downtrodden people. Oh, that's very nice. And people who want to kill babies will call it rights. My rights. Women's, you don't believe in women's rights? Of course I believe in women's rights. Oh, you, you're some kind of uh, chauvinist? No, 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 I'm not. Oh, good, good. How could you be against women's rights? Okay, no problem. Now, now that you put it that way, sure, go ahead, kill the baby. Funny enough, when Lacey Peterson was killed by her husband, Scott Peterson, he was convicted not for once, one act of murder, but for two acts of murder. Why? Because he was the father, not the mother? If the mother kills him, it's a mitzvah. If the father kills him, he gets a death sentence. Some kind of dissonance over here? I don't mean to gloss over simple issues. Each one of these issues is very complex. Um, with at least varying levels of complexity. Some of them are pretty straightforward. Some of them are very difficult. And there's, there's all kinds of nuances, which I'm not glossing over. And I'm, and I'm, not, I'm not trying to ride roughshod over uh, people and their sensitivities and pain and anguish and suffering. Just saying that invariably, whenever society will do something bad, they will first explain why it's really good. So that's Haman's job. Haman has this idea. Haman wants to exterminate the Jewish people. 
So you're not going to come to Achashverosh and say, Achashverosh, my dear beloved king, let's exterminate the Jews. And Achashverosh will say, oh yeah, let's exterminate the Jews. What will that require? Oh, a couple of hundred, maybe a million acts of murder. Sure, order me to. So Haman has to make the case. Haman is a very smart guy, very cunning, very clever. So he's going to make the case to Achashverosh why Achashverosh should agree to mass genocide, to the murder of millions of people. So that's number one. Number two, if you are a mass murderer and a genocidist and a terrorist, your wise move will be to play on people's fears and to simply tap into people's pre-extant hatreds. So if people have certain fears or animosities or acrimonies or discomfort, you have to say, hey, you know that, that bad feeling you have? You know that worry, that concern, that issue? This is it. Here's the scapegoat. This is the reason you're having all these problems. He's the reason? Can't get rid of him. So you tapped into people's natural or latent hatreds and it's going to become very easy. Haman employed both of these in a very, very beguiling way. And he does it in few words. Man, a few words. But very, very wise. Well, wise is a bad word. Very, very cunning words. Although, I say just tell us that the words in the Megillah, which are somewhat short, had a subtext to it. And Haman elaborated greatly and had all kinds of things he was alluding to in those few words, but he does basically these two things. So let's take a look and see what happens. Haman has now gone on to Mirachashverosh. We already studied in our previous class about how he arranged the date. He knows exactly what he wants to do. It's all random. A couple of random Jews here and there. He's going to take care of them. And he has, a, he has everything from his perspective worked out. He's, he's got his, all his stars lined up. All he needs now is royal permission. All he needs is to make this law. So Haman says to the king Achashverosh, There's this one nation that's scattered all all over the place, scattered all about amongst the other nations, and they're in all of the provinces of your kingdom, they're there. Now this people, who is one people but scattered amongst all other nations in all the provinces, their rules, their laws are different than everybody else's. They play by their own set of rules. There's Dase HaMelech. If that weren't enough that they play by their own rules, the king's rules, Einam Osin, they don't do. And therefore, since we have this people who is scattered all over the place, people who have their own set of rules and they violate the king's rules, Lamelech Ein Shavala there's really no benefit for the king in having these people. So the first thing Haman does is there's no, 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 no loss over here. No loss. And he says, these people are, they're not good. They're bad. They're bad for the kingdom. They're bad for society. They're bad for civilization. That's, that's, that's his first, uh, so to speak, approach. First volley. Now Rashi only says four words. He comments in four words. He encapsulates all of Haman's logic and reason. He says, Dasi HaMelech, which rules don't they keep? There's lawlessness everywhere. Every society, in every time, in every civilization, has always had police forces and always had prisons. There's always been lawless individuals. What does it mean the Jews are lawless? There was a Jew who was sitting in the Senate. Was he lawless? So he says, 
Rashi says he chooses, and we'll see, we'll go into the details in, in the writings of our sages, but Rashi chooses four words to make the most potent argument, and if you think about this, anti-Semites have said this time and time again. He says, They don't pay the taxes. They're cheating the government. They're taking advantage of the government. Think about recent examples of anti-Semitism. Think about recent examples of planned genocides against the Jewish people. How does it always start? The Jews took all the money. The Jews are the bankers. The Jews have a plot. The Jews aren't paying the taxes. The Jews are robbing the country. The Jews are robbing the coffers. The Jews are robbing the government. The Jews are robbing the people. The Jews are taking everybody's money. Eh, it's an old thing. They've been saying that for thousands of years. That's what Haman said. It's very interesting that Rashi chooses these four words of all the different things he could say. Rashi says, the crux of the matter, it all boiled down to a few bucks. The economy's bad. Who are you going to blame? The Jews, of course. Now, the Ibn Ezra is a little bit disturbed by the fact that it says the word yesh, no. Yesh, no, he says, there is. You could just say yesh in Hebrew. Yesh, there is. So why do you have the yesh, no? So he says, the nun here is superfluous, and it would seem that the Yud is also. You say, Yesho, Yeshno, you say Yesh. It's superfluous. The Ibn Ezra does not uh, take the time to explain why it might have a superfluous nature. We'll soon see in the writings of our sages in the Mishnah and the Gemara that Yeshna has many, many explanations to it, but perhaps the Ibn Ezra tips us off to this by simply saying the word Yeshno is not really a required word. Rashi is less concerned. Rashi generally comments on contexts and doesn't focus so much on grammar always. So if the grammar can be understood, if it can't be, Rashi will spend time on grammar. But if it can be understood, so then it is, it is what it is. Yes, no, that's, that's the language he used. It's somebody speaking, he used that language. The Ibn Ezra points out that the word could have been said in a, in, a, in a simpler way, so there is a subtle subtext, and we'll see soon see in a moment what that is. Ibn Ezra focuses in his commentary, which is also, you know, simple pshat, mefuzaru meforad bin ha'amim, if you want to say they're scattered, why do you have to say they're scattered amongst the nations? They're mefuzar, they're scattered. And why do you miforad? They're scattered and they're divided. Why scattered and divided? Scattered is divided. And what's the difference between Amin? So the Ibn Ezra says, sheyipored ishmi alechov. They actually cause divisiveness. They're a scattered, divisive people. And their rules are different. They don't keep the king's rules. And in every nation, most people are keeping the rules. With this nation, most of them don't keep the rules. So the majority of Jews, he said, they're cheating on the taxes. The majority of Jews are stealing. The majority of Jews are causing economic collapse in the country. And that's the idea of Mefuzar or Meforod. The Vilna Gorn, in his explanation, he says, what's Mefuzar or Meforod? He says, they themselves are scattered about. And... They separate. He says, meforad means they're, they're not just scattered. If they're scattered, why don't they become like everybody else? He says, no. They remain apart. They think they're better. They're different. They refuse to marry everybody else. So today, for example, when people uh, get angry about the Jewish hypersensitivity a bit into marriage, which is some like the last vestige of Jews for many people have, what do they talk about? It's racist. Jews are racist. Who likes racism? Who defends racism? They don't say Jews are doing something. Jews are racist. Oh, Zionism is racism. On the anniversary of Kristallnacht in 19, was it 73, 74. 
So if you put it in that in that context, mefuzer meforad, they're scattered, and, and but but they remain apart anyway. So they're everywhere, but they're still apart. They're divisive, and therefore, and they don't keep the rules. They don't keep the laws. They're, they're, they're bankrupting the economy. What does the king need them for? What value? What contribution do they make towards society? The Jew is a parasite. He's a bloodsucker. He's not adding to the welfare of our common good. That's the simple pshat. So let's take a look for, for a moment at some of the words of the Medrash and the Gemara, and then I'm going to guide you through the Targum Sheni, who gives us the subtext to all of Haman's claims, which are just hinted at in a few words, and it's going to blow your mind. It's like, wow, what he says. So first of all, let's talk about the idea of Yeshno. Yeshno, Ibn Ezra already told us, it's not an unnecessary word. There's something more that's going on over here. So the Medrash said, Achashverosh was a pretty smart guy, actually. He did some foolish things. He acted foolishly. But, but he was a smart person. And he said, I'm afraid of their gods. These people, people have tried to destroy these people before. Why would I be successful? So Haman said, Yeshno. Yeshno doesn't just mean there are, but Yeshno can also mean Yeshno they have fallen asleep. They're no longer actively Jewish. They're just Jewish in name, in culture. They're just thieves, whatever. They're not really doing mitzvahs anymore. Yashno minham mitzvahs. They're sleeping from the mitzvahs. So if they're sleeping from the mitzvahs, and they're no longer keeping Judaism, so their God's not going to come to save them. But what virtue do they have any kind of right to divine protection? So that's something, one thing about Yashno. The Medrash tells us further that Yashno am echod, Achashverosh was told by Haman, God is sleeping. God fell asleep. He, he's no longer engaged and involved with these people. They were exiled. The base of Megish was destroyed. Seventy years have passed. You, Achashverosh, yourself, were you wearing the clothes of the Kohen Gadol? Nothing happened. The Jews aren't getting it together. They try to go back to Israel. Before the story of Purim, they tried to go back to Israel. Some Jews were in Israel. They tried to start building the base of Megdash. The base of Megdash was the construction was impeded. It was, wasn't getting any traction. People weren't going home to Eretz Yisrael. He said, God has forgotten about them. They are a thing of the past. They're history. You no longer have to be concerned. Uh, another Medrash says that the word yeshno is connected to the term which means teeth in Hebrew. How do you say teeth? Shinayim, right? A dentist in Hebrew, rofei shinayim. So yeshno means they have big teeth, he said. What does that mean? Big teeth? He said, they're always eating the Jews. They're gluttonous. They always have a yumtif. Now they're eating it. Now, now it's chicken soup and then it's matzah. And it's, they're always making something with food. It was Shabbos and yumtif. He says they have Pesach. They have, they have, they have, they have Shavuos. Which I guess means they must have had blintzes or something back in the time of Shavuos also. Maybe they just ate meat because it's yumtif. He says they have they have the, uh, the, the, the they have reshata they have the beginning of the year so the the, the Medrash says uh, Rosh Hashanah then they have then they have a day they don't eat and then they have a day after that and then they have sukkah they're eating in a sukkah he says he says they're they're always eating they're always fressing, they're always enjoying themselves and, and therefore like just get rid of these people just get rid of, they're not they're not they're not they're not making any contribution so that's like the hint in the term yeshno now. Very interestingly, the Medrash says that God said, hmm, 
You don't like my yamim tovim? You don't like the Jewish people's having yamtif? No problem. I'll add another one. And this one will be on you. So this way. And when do we eat more? The way the biggest mitzvah of eating and feasting and drinking is on Purim. Because like the Rambam says that in general, a person should be careful not to eat and drink too much on a regular Yom Tov. But on Purim it says, we eat, we drink, and we're merry, as the Halacha says, until a person doesn't know the difference between Haman and Mordechai. And you have to really drink a lot for that. That's like, so this is, this, this is the idea. And uh, the, the Rebbe once interpreted that medrash in a very interesting way. He said that every Yom Tov has its basic focus. Every Yom Tov focuses on an element, a detail within what we're going to call Judaism, within Torah tradition. So Rosh Hashanah focuses on the idea of renewal. Hashem created the world, the world is created for a purpose, we have a, a mission, we get judged, we get looked at individually. That's Rosh Hashanah's Yom Kippur, the idea of Mechilo Slicha, Hashem forgiving us, we become at one with Hashem. On, on Sukkot, we commemorate going out of Mitzrayim being protected, the idea of Hashem's protection. Pesach is liberation, freedom. It's a, it's a liberty. It's, it's, it's a concept within the framework of Judaism, but it's a specific concept. On Shavuot, we celebrate the giving of the Torah. So somebody will come and say, okay, so what do you celebrate on Purim? What do you celebrate? What element of Judaism? Our, our existence. It's not a specific detail of our Judaism. What do we focus on? On Judaism itself. So therefore, the Rebbe suggests that the deeper meaning of, of the Medrash is that this is, this is a, a cause for celebration that has no specific detail to it. It's not a specific cause. It's a general cause. The joy of Purim is the joy of being Jewish. Not the joy of a detail of being Jewish or of a specific part of our Yiddishkeit and of our connection to HaKadosh Baruch Hu. So that's the, 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 the Medrash saying, you don't like the fact that they have Yom Im Tovim about specifics? I'll take it over the top. Now they'll have a Yom Tov that celebrates Yiddishkeit itself. So that's, that's kind of a, a deeper reading into the idea of the holiday of Purim. And it, you see that this, the, the nature of Purim itself, it's already encoded from the very beginning. When Haman is making the suggestion for the final solution, already we have the hints of future salvation that's going to unfold afterwards. Now, what is the Pshat Mefuzur Meforad? Why did he try to talk about the divisiveness? So, as we, as we said, they talked about them not being a people who creates cohesiveness or unity, but disunity. But the Gemara Megillah says something very shim- simple. He said, any normal king doesn't want to just destroy a province, a part of your country. You can have a patch of, all of a sudden, devoid of humanity. What do you do then? So he says, don't worry, nobody knows the difference. It's like a few white hairs and a few white hairs there. You just pull them out. Nobody, they're all scattered all over the place. Nobody will even know the difference when we get rid of the Jews. People will move into their homes. People will take over their businesses. Everything will continue to function exactly like before. Because he has to make a compelling argument that it's not going to hurt the economy. Ahasuerus is, after all, a king. And he has a nation to worry about. And he has an economy to be concerned with. And if he goes bankrupt, that's not going to be helpful. So therefore, Haman tries to you know, ease this along. No pain, he says. No fault. Not everything's going to be fine. All right, let's take a look at the Paschagin before we go into uh, some of the other details of, of the different Mepharshim. So the Paschagin says like this. The first thing Haman said, Mefuzur, Meforad, Ben Ha'amim, he said, they're spread all over the place. He said, you should know 
that these are a lazy people. They make no contribution. He says they're always so proud of themselves. They're always taking care of themselves. They're always well looked after. He, he says, Melokdim Pishle, the Teves, and Teves, they're taking hot baths. Yasi Bechatsivi Tamas, they're going into the swimming pool in the hot summer. And they're, they're, they're not really following it, everybody else follows. And here, he starts to make the, the, the complaints. So the first thing he says about the Jews is you should know that they look at us differently, look down at us, they curse us, they think that we are impure. And whenever it comes time to enforce the law, the Jews are always taking care of their own. They're always hiding their own. They're always going to protect their own. They're like operating this separate system. This is also known later as Protocols of the Elders of Zion. It's like, think of that. Like, this is the canon of anti-Semitism. The Jews have their own system. They're not part of our system. He says you can never catch them. They're so evasive, the Jews. They're so, they're so hard to know. Everything is so secretive. And, Tagum Sheni says, the very next thing he said was, racist. They don't want to intermarry. They don't want to be like everybody else. They have to be different. They have to be separate. And he says, they're lazy. Every time we come and we tell them to work, they say, I have another excuse to work. Now we have to daven. Now we have to say shema. Now we have to go and bench. They always have all their religious freedom. They ask for all these days off and they're not making any real contribution. Then he goes on in a whole long detail. And then he starts talking about the Yamim Tovim. And the, Med- the Pasheg and Tagim Shein, he says, you take a look at the, the, the Yamim Tovim. Every Yom Tov, he says the same thing. First of all, he talks about the fact that they, they don't work, that they eat their own special foods. They go into their secret synagogues. And what do they do? They curse us. They curse the king. They curse his ministers. And they curse us. Now, in the Middle Ages, what did they accuse the Jewish people of? Poisoning the wells. Poisoning the water supply. Haman said, do you know what they do? The women go to the mikveh in the middle of the night and they poison our wells. <laughs> now the secret of part of Judaism, right? Actually, it is a very discreet thing. So Haman tried to take everything and he made a blood libel out of it. He said, you know what else they do? They are a cruel people. They circumcise babies at eight days old. Sound familiar? The first thing outlawed in Nazi Germany, by the way, if I'm, not, if I'm not making a mistake, was circumcision. That's Bismillah. They said, they said they're cruel people. Now, I, I, I asked one of these people that I was talking to once, I said, do you think that you care more about my children than I do? You think you're more worried about my children? He said, of course, yes. And I said, well, that's ridiculous. <laughs> I said, if you care about my children, then don't try to outlaw Bismillah because we're doing it anyway. And if you outlaw it, you're just going to put my kids in, 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 in a worse situation. Anyway, then he says, they burn their chametz. And he says, you know what else they do then? Secretly, they go into the shul after they finish burning the chametz. They say the king is chametz. They say his ministers are chametz. And when they ask God to burn us, all of us. And then he goes through every yomtev like that. Every yomtev, he says the same thing. They go and they read the secret books and they curse us. And Haman tries to highlight all kinds of, anything which he found strange or outlandish about the customs. He highlights the customs and he says, and it's all about cursing us. It's all secretive, cursing the king. Trying to hurt our society. He said, they're, they're further cruelly said, not only they fast on, on Yom Kippur, they deny their children food on Yom Kippur. Child abuse. <laughs> it's, it's language. 
Don't call it sacred day of atonement. Call it child abuse. Now, any good person listening to this gets, this is terrible, you know, self-righteous. They do that too. Haman says, furthermore, not only do they, again, he says, Yom Kippur, they have their secret convocation, and then they curse us again. He says, further than that, then on the, on the, on the 15th day of that same month, they go in and they, they have a sukkah, he says. They ruin the environment. They cut trees down from all over. They ruin all the gardens. They make the country ugly. And then they cut down palm trees and they, 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 they take all the esrogim away. It's actually ridiculous. They cut all the apples off. Is that also ruining the environment? But that's how he presented it. They're killing the environment. Can you imagine? This is terrible stuff. And he says they go in their huts and guess what they do over there in their secret huts? <laughs> they curse the king again. <laughs> he says, We don't even know if they're cursing us. Maybe they're blessing us. He says, we don't know. It's all very secretive. And here he talks again about the fact that they don't want to do any work and so on and so forth. And then Haman's greatest taina. He says, there was a great king from amongst our nation, Nebuchadnezzar. He doesn't want to mention his name. He just says a great king because, of course, Vashti was a granddaughter of Nebuchadnezzar and Ahasuerus, as we discussed, was not really supposed to become a king. He was a Manchurian candidate who came in out of nowhere and he usurped the throne. But he says, he destroyed the Beis HaMikdash. You would think that finally the Jews wouldn't be so proud of themselves. You'd think they'd finally be able to hang their heads in shame and give up. He says, you know, want to hear what? They still have the chutzpah to walk with pride. They're still proud of themselves. They still think they're special. And they still think they're going home to Israel. And they have no loyalty to our country. Could you imagine, he says? They say that we are pagans, that we are worshipping idols, and they worshipped only one true God. And they went out of Egypt. And no matter what happens to them, they're always going to be fine. It bothers him. Jewish pride killed him. Couldn't stand the fact that the Jew was still proud of himself. Then he says, the Jews, they have no poor amongst them. They're all rich. And this is, this is how uh, Haman continues to lay the case out for his mass genocide. Now, very interestingly, he never mentions the name Jew or Israel. He starts off without a name. Because it's much, much easier to talk about a theoretical people and talk about how terrible they are. And then once Ahasuerus is convinced, and he said, yeah, you're right, these are terrible people. If you tell him they're Jews, you say, well, you know, Mordechai's a Jew and I appointed him to the Senate and I'm sure he had some Jewish friends and he invited the Jews over to the party. He's not going to want to kill the Jews. But first he just talks about how horrible, there's this horrible people, this horrible nation. Oh, they happen to be Jews. I'm not an anti-Semite or anything, but, you know, this horrible people that's doing all these terrible things. So by now, Achashverosh is buying into it. Now, the, 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 the Vilni Gaon says something very interesting and the Erechaim says it also. He says, it's the most natural thing, he says, he says, Ein sinna, says the, the Erechaim, Kisinas Adas. There's no hatred like the hatred of our faith. All of the nations, they hate us forever. So it's natural. You have to just exploit the natural hatred that's there. He knows it beneath the surface. Afachashverosh will say, maybe the people will rebel, maybe they'll revolt, maybe they won't like this. Don't worry, says Haman. Everybody hates the Jews. You will not have to answer for this. I think it was Goebbels, Yomach Shemay, who said that history will judge us favorably. He says, now we're considered to be horrible people. History will tell a different story. History will look at us differently in the future. And in that way, the Erechaim says these exact words, he says, Yaskireyu l'toiva, they'll praise you. Asher ibed umas nuameavim. That you got rid of a nation who is hated and despised. Now, this is, of course, very chilling and very discomforting because a lot of these things that Haman said sound very, very familiar. 
Some of them sound familiar to things being said today, some of them a few decades ago, some of them a century ago. But these are words and terms and complaints that we're all unfortunately familiar with. Which tells you that not that much changes. <laughs> but we're still here. Before, before you get all down. Yeah. It seems initially he doesn't know. That's what it seems like. But although he seems to catch on at some point. Okay, this is a very good question. You're saying, if he's such an out-of-the-box anti-Semite, why did he offer kosher food? The answer is, he, was, uh, he played the multicultural. So you can't exclude Jews all of a sudden. He invited everybody, invite the Jews too. Give everybody what they wanted. It reminds me of somebody else. Is he anti-Semite? Is he not anti-Semite? Nobody can figure him out. But deep down, under this, underneath this, the surface, he was a big anti-Semite. So he played the game, and he wasn't going to say he's going he's to hate Jews. But when Haman makes this compelling case about these horrible people who are doing such damage to the country, and really it's not going to make a difference if we get rid of them, Achishverosh says, yeah, that kind of makes sense. I, I, we could do that. So let's talk about some of the, the details here. Let's talk about the... the um, he says, Yesh am echad mefuzer Which we've given a number of explanations for, this idea of the Jewish people are are spread about, they're different, they're divisive. What's a, what's a message, what's a lesson that we can learn from this? So, on the surface, there's a contradiction in these words. On one hand, you say, Yeshnam am echad, there is one nation. On the other hand, you say, Mufuzar umaforad, that they're scattered everywhere. On the American dollar bill, it says, Ipluberis unum, which means one nation, but it means really out of many comes one. This idea of hammering together, a collective. So when you want to say that something is one, you would say maybe there was many and they became one, but how do you say it's one and they're all over the place? It seems to be almost a contradiction in terms. If they're echad, they're united. If they're mafuz or mafora, they're scattered hither and thither, then they're not united. So the Rebbe once explained it like this. There's a deeper message here, he says. A Jew... Aben Avram Yitzchak Yaakov, we, Am Yisrael, have to know that even in times when we are mefuzer umeforet, even in time when we are scattered, and even in time when we don't have this this uh, this commonality, if you will, that's visible in an overt way, we don't have the unity. Maybe perhaps we're not living together in the same geographic location, and we're not operating in tandem. But the truth is, though, we always remain Am Echad. We always do remain one people. Now, how could you say this? That Jewish people come in every color, they come in, in every size, come in every shape, they come in every culture. You know, people talk about Indian Jews, people talk about the African Jews. That's not a new thing. If you read the Megillah, literally, you hear about Ahasuerus's massive empire, which is made up of 127 provinces, Mehodu, Viad Kush, specifically from India, to Ethiopia. And it says, Haman says, they're mefuzer umeforad bechol medinos, in all of the provinces. That means in the time of Purim, there had to be Jews living in India. There had to be Jews living in Ethiopia. There had to be Jews living everywhere where people were, in Ahasuerus's massive empire, Jews were living. So really, we're not echad. We have different, we speak different dialects. We even have different customs. 
Even observant Jews had different customs. How could you say we're Am Echad? How could you say that all the Jews of all the ages are the same people? We've lived very, very different lives, had very different experiences. So the Rebbe writes something very interesting. Says, you know, scientifically, when you want to prove or demonstrate something, what is the best way to make an experiment to, to prove the veracity or truth of, of a particular theory? You have to test it. Now, do you test it in the exact same variables? The answer would be, no, that doesn't show that it's always necessarily true. In fact, then if you have three or four variables which keep repeating themselves in every set of tests or in every, in every reality, then I'm not sure what is the cause. The wisest way to test something is to have the greatest range of variables in which you will have in each of the variables only a single common denominator. And if you have a single common denominator in every one of the variables, and in every one of the variables it always happens, what does it tell you? That tells you the truth, the scientific, strictly speaking, knowledge of the reality. So if you take a look at the Jewish people, what has defined us in every time? Sometimes we've been defined by skin color. Sometimes we've been defined by hair color. Sometimes we've been defined by eye color. Sometimes we're defined by build or by shape or by our noses or by our ears. We've been defined in all kinds of different ways. In different ages we've been defined. Sometimes we're defined by the, 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 the various uh, industries that we're involved in. Some places or ages we've been defined as a nation who is mighty. And other times we've been defined as a nation who is meek and victim victim-like. What is the only common denominator we find for the Jewish people? The only thing is Torah. That's the only thing that we can actually say in every generation, whether we were victims or victors, whether we were mighty or weak, whether we were black or yellow or green, whether we had blonde hair or blue hair. It didn't make a difference. In any situation, what's the only thing that united us, the only commonality over all the ages? Torah and mitzvahs. And that's the message of Am Echad. Hashem wants the Jewish people to know, and sometimes the truth is best seen through the eyes of our enemies. Haman took a look at a people, a people who he himself says is Mefuzar Meforad. There were Indian Jews, there were Ethiopian Jews, there were, there were Jews living in Israel, whatever name, whatever fake name they made up for it then. Palestine, they made the name Palestinian Jews only comes in the, in the 18 centuries ago. So they had probably a different name, what they called, they called Israel then. Whatever they called Israel. And whatever, wherever Jews were living, there were, there, were, there were Egyptian Jews and there were Syrian Jews. There were Persian Jews. There were Jews that were living in, the, in, 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 in Turkey. And all over, the massive empire. We can go back and look. You have a map today of Ahasuerus' empire. In every one of these places, Jews were living. And without a question, they had their own different customs. They probably looked different. They probably spoke different languages. But nonetheless, Haman said, it's all the same. It's all the same. What was the same? He said, Am Echad. And then you, once you scratch the surface, deep down, it's all the same. At the end of the day, they have a loyalty to Yiddishkeit. At the end of the day, they still care about being a Jew. And the only real definition for being a Jew is Torah and mitzvahs. Which is perhaps the cause for Haman's hatred. But for us, it is a very clear indicator on what really makes us Jewish. What, who really are we? Who really are we? Are we a nation because we have a state? Because we have an army, because we're smart, because we're successful, because we're losers. What makes us into a nation? So the message is, Yeshno Am Echot, that regardless of time and place, the secret to our survival is our Echot, our oneness with Hashem, our Torah and our mitzvahs. That's very powerful.
So Haman saw that, and that's something that we have to know as well. Another occasion, when, when the Rebbe was speaking about this idea of Yeshne Am Echad, he said something fascinating. He said that when one looks at the Jewish people's being dispersed or divided, when one looks at the Jewish people in various incarnations or in various exilic realities, you have to know that there is the physical material reality and then there is the spiritual and eternal reality. There's, there's an expression from the Rebbe Rashab who said that our bodies went into Gullus, but our neshama remains aloof and transcendent. The neshama was never sent into Gullus. In other words, Haman himself understands that Yeshnei Am Echad, that the Yid is a neshama. And it doesn't matter where he's mefuzrim afeidat. But ultimately, there is the lo yichre There's the little Mordechai inside of him. And there's, 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 that, there's that pride and that's what Haman is after, but that's to us once again, the greatest affirmation of who we are. That we have to know that regardless of the physical reality, regardless of how the material reality plays itself out, the neshama remains. And our spiritual oneness is a constant. So this, once again, is the yeshnei am echad, that even if we're not literally and physically and materially united, nonetheless, we remain an am echad, we remain a single people. Now, Haman goes on in making his uh, argument for the final solution after he's described these problematic people who won't change. Can't, we can't seem to get around the problems. And anyway, there's nothing much to be lost by it. Haman now even more cleverly says to the king, if it's okay with the king, if the king thinks it's a good idea, get rid of him. It's just a stroke of a pen. You don't even have to be there. You get an auto pen to do it to you, he said. This is nothing. Just have somebody write it. Just have it written that they should be destroyed. And there'll be 10,000 silver talents. I'll give to those who are doing the work, the stewards, to deposit in the king's treasury. Or as the Vilna Gaon says, he'll give it to the people who are involved in producing currency. I'll give them bullion. I'll give him the amount of silver. I'll give it straight over to the treasury. The treasury can go ahead and mint new money now. And they will place that money. They'll make a deposit in Ginzi HaMelech. So what is, what, why, why does he offer him money? What is up with, with the offering this money all of a sudden? At a very literal level, the, the uh, Malbim says there's going to be a huge loss of revenue. All these people paying taxes. Okay, they cheated on their taxes. They're still paying some kind of taxes. What's going to happen with all of a sudden? You know, the, an economy is suddenly missing a chunk of, of, of its annual GDP, of its annual uh, contribution. It's going to cause a breakdown in the economy. Haman says, I have that. The economy, don't worry about. I'll, I'll find the money elsewhere. I'm not telling you what to do, he says. If, if you think it's a good idea, your majesty, it's not my idea. This, I'm not telling you what to do. But if you think it's a good idea to solidify your empire and to get rid of the problematic people, if you're worried about the economic damage, I'll take care of the economy. So Haman, brilliantly, he, he, he orchestrates this. He knows exactly what he wants, of course. But he doesn't come along and say, go and kill him. Ashverosh just doesn't like being told what to do anyway, besides everything else. He says, no, this is for you. This is for your interest. I'm just here as an advisor, he said. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not telling you what to do. 
if you want to do it, this might be a good idea. As the Vilni Bond said, he said, Ain't it came. I don't necessarily want this. I'm, just not, I'm a nice guy. You know, I don't really believe in genocide. But, but he says, but if you think it's a good idea, <laughs> who am I to say? I'm just saying. I'm just, I'm just saying. I'm just giving advice. It might, it might be, it might be a good idea because it's problematic people are causing all these issues. If you get rid of them, this might be a good idea. Now, interestingly, he never uses the word kill. He never uses the word genocide. What word does he use? He uses the words la'abdam, which la'abdam, on, on a, a literal meaning, could be understood, could be translated as extermination. But it could mean just, you know, to dissipate, rub out, get rid of. The Malbum said he didn't suggest kill. He said, you know, we just need to get rid of this Judaism stuff. As long as they stop identifying as Jews, as long as each one of these people, wherever they may be, will melt into their milieu, into the culture and land of in their province, everything's going to be fine. So in other words, like the Alta Rebbe says in Tehidah he didn't say that you have to kill Yisrael, which is all of Israel. He said, kill Yehudim. Yehudim means people who identify as Jews, which Yehudim means one who denies of Yisrael. means a Jew could do just about everything else, but one thing he won't do is, is you know, embrace of Yisrael. So Haman, really, the, he suggested the decree should be get rid of Judaism. Get rid of this race, get rid of this nation. You don't have to go kill them. Do it very cleanly. Just make sure they don't identify Jewishly anymore. And it is conceivable that Haman assumed that an enormous amount of Jews would actually melt into the background. Would actually not put up a fight. And then the few religious Jews, he killed them. And then it's all over. To Haman's shock, the Jewish people all of a sudden bounce back. This nation that he himself said they're sleeping from Tater Mitzvahs. This nation who went and ate non-kosher food on Shabbos while Achashverosh is prancing around in the Kohen Gadol's raiments on the vessels of the base of Migdash. This very same nation, the nation that hated Mordechai, the nation that couldn't stand the rabbis, that very same nation all of a sudden rose like a giant. They were like a giant that was roused. And like lions, they reaffirmed themselves with unbelievable courage to Hashem and His Torah. So then... That they had to now. Now the state, they, this is going to be a real confrontation. Now they didn't simply walk off into the dark and say, "Okay, no problem. We will very conveniently fade out of existence." They said, "We are here to stay. We're here to stay." This this is a real confrontation. And once that confrontation is set, and the Jewish people did tshuva a whole year. Then on the next year, on the thirteenth day of Adar, we were allowed self defense. We were allowed to kill our enemies. We were allowed to kill all the neo Nazis and Islamo fascists of the day and kill them. We did as the Megillah tells the story of how we were able to stand for our rights. But it's, it's, Haman never uses the word here in the beginning, Ahasuerus, he doesn't say the words, he doesn't say the words to kill them. Now, when, when Haman is gnashing his teeth, and when he's talking about what he wants to do, he says, Lahashmed is kola Yehudim. He wants to destroy. But here when he talks to Ahasuerus, he says, Abdam. He changes the language. He's just like, oh, you know, once again, language. Language. You don't, don't, don't say kill, don't say murder, say quality of life. We're preserving the republic. We're going to save the economy. We're going to save the nation. Because it's like these cancerous people. We have to just get rid of all the problems. And then everything will be fine. Now the better says, what's up with this silver? And why do we have this? Why did Haman specifically emphasize the idea of the Aseris Alofim Kikar? Now, 
By the way, when it comes to the idea of Yikosev La'abdam, you'll write to destroy them. Rashi says, Yikosev Sfarim L'Shleich L'Sarei Hamadinis. You don't even have to do it yourself. You just, you just have put an edict in place. You have no blood on your hands. Your Republican guard doesn't carry it out. You tell everybody else to do it. Brilliant. You, you basically assign the genocide to somebody else. And then you could say, I didn't do anything. I just, I just signed agreements. I just made, you know, I, I, I created a law. I created a system that would allow for somebody else to do it. And he didn't do it. And he offers this enormous amount of money. All right. So let's take a look now and see what our sages talk, uh, talk about when, when it comes to this huge amount of money. The, the, the Medrash and, and, and Medrash Abba says like this. Pardon me. The Gemara Megillah says, Amadesh Lakish. Amadesh Lakish said, it was obviously known to the one who spoke and brought the world into existence. That Haman would eventually give silver talents, give shekels, to try and have the Jewish people destroyed. Therefore Hashem ensured that the shekels of the Jewish people would precede the shekels of Haman. This is what we learn in a Mishnah. That other, the month that Haman had slated for our extermination, was the month that the Jewish people traditionally gave the Machatzit HaShekel from the time of Moshe Rabbeinu. The Machatzit HaShekel, in other words, provided us with a shield, with a cover from Haman's extermination plans. Now, when we talk about this idea of the Machatzit HaShekel, there's, there's a lot of deep meaning over here. It's not, it doesn't just say the Jewish people gave a lot of tzedakah over, over, over the ages. We were always known to give tzedakah. What's the emphasis here specifically on machzah shekel? Haman gave his 10,000 silver talents and the Gemara tells us that it's these silver talents ultimately that defend the Jewish people. Haman gave shekels. What did we give? When the Jewish people, what did they give? We gave a chatzi shekel. We get half shekels. So what's the le- lesson, or what's the idea of a half a shekel? There is a concept in the Medrash that every single Jew gave a half a shekel, whether it was initially to make the Mishka, which became the foundation of the Mishka, the, the silver sockets, or whether it was because later every year another they would collect and this money would subsequently be put to use for the offerings in the base of Mikdash, for the daily offerings. That the half shekel, a Jew says to Hashem, I am not complete without you. I am only a half. In other words, my physical material life has no meaning if I don't have any Yiddishkeit. So I only give half a shekel. By giving half a shekel, I demonstrate that I feel that life is not simply the sum total of eating, sleeping, or material experiences, but rather, there's a whole neshama part over here. There's a whole other part of life, a non-tangible part of life, which to me is equally important. There is such, an, uh, such a concept, such an idea within, within, within Jewish literature. And the Rebbe suggests, based on this Gemara with Ishlakesh, that that is exactly the message of the Chatzis Shekel. What did the Jewish people do when they were faced with extermination? They had a choice to make. Your choice is either you preserve your life physically, or you say, I'm not letting go of my Jewishness and my spirituality, even if it costs my life. This is in the vernacular called Mesiris Nefesh, a willingness for martyrdom. I'm not self-sacrifice. I'm not giving it away. I'm not going to walk away from my Yiddishkeit. The Jewish people lived in a manner of chatzis shekel that year. 
Because that year they made a, a clear demonstration. Nobody was actually killed. Mesiris Nefesh in its uh, typical sense means that somebody actually gives a life for Yiddishkeit. Nobody gave their life. Nobody, nobody, nobody got hurt. But the Jewish people made a very, very strong statement. And the strong statement was, we will not give our spiritual identity in order to ascertain our material safety. It's not, it's not an option for us. In other words, life is just half a shekel. Without, without our Yiddishkeit, life is not worth living. That's basically the message they gave. And because that was the message they gave, Hashem in the end saves them. And that's the idea of the shekel. What counterba- counterbalances Haman's shekels? The Jewish people's chazi shekel, which is not just the fact that they gave tzedakah, not just the fact that once upon a time they had decided to do a mitzvah and the mitzvah became a shield in a time of difficulty, which we have an idea. The Mishnah says every time you do a mitzvah, it creates a protective aura about you. But that specifically the paradigm of chazi shekel, that was what brought about the miracle. Now let's take this a step further. On, an, on another occasion, the Rebbe explained the idea of the chazi shekel by analyzing what the chazi shekel we used for. Chazi shekel means half a shekel. Moshe Rabbeinu is going to build a mishkan. He asked the Jewish people all to contribute three times. Three times he asked for a truma. The first was half a silver shekel. And half a silver shekel, everybody had to give equally. It says, The wealthy couldn't add, the poor couldn't subtract. Everybody gave half a shekel. And what did they do with that half shekel? They melted down that silver and that served as the foundation of the Mishkan. There were large boards or planks that were placed into silver sockets, heavy silver sockets. And that, those, that ring of silver or that, those, that square of silver on the floor, that's where the boards are placed into. That's how the Mishkan was able to stand. The foundation of the Mishkan, everybody had to contribute to equally. That's the foundation. And then there was, everybody can give according to their own generosity as they were impelled to give. And then there's the idea that everybody gave towards another half a shekel. And the other second time half a shekel was for what purpose? So that the offerings, the daily offerings of the Beis Migdash, would be purchased from the money that all the Jewish people had contributed equally. Once again, emphasis, you can't give more, you can't give less. In other words, nobody can have more or nobody can have less. Everybody will participate in the same fashion. So at this time, when the Jewish people were faced with the, the great threat of genocide in the days of Haman, how was it that we were able to earn Hashem's grace? How was it that we were able to catalyze the great miracle and the great salvation of Purim? The answer was that all of the Jewish people together woke up in, in different phraseology. The Pintaliyid was stirred. Right, the dot of Jewishness. There's a, you know, you can't be a little bit pregnant. You can't be a little bit Jewish. So you have a neshama, you don't have a neshama. So there's a certain element that everybody, the person can be fabulously wealthy with mitzvahs, the person can be totally impoverished with mitzvahs. But there's certain equality. Purim, the, the nature of Purim was that we rose together. And it didn't matter that tzaddikim, the beninim, the neshoyim, the wicked people, the average people, the superlatively holy Everybody came together. And that's once again the paradigm of the half a shekel. So Haman came and he said, I'm going to strike all the Jews down. I will draw no distinction between Jews. I don't care if there's the, the flaming visible Jew or the Jew who's so ashamed and embarrassed that you barely know that he's Jewish. I'll strike them all down. 
I'm, I'm after all of them. I don't want to have any Jewish kind of identity left in this world. No Jews in the world. And what's the response to Haman? That every single Yid's neshama, every single Yid's essence all of a sudden is laid bare and everybody lays claim to Torah and mitzvahs. So the shekel versus shekel. It's not just play of words and it's not just they did a mitzvah. So here's the mitzvah that is, that is a counterbalance. This mitzvah is paradigmatic of what it is that brought about the miracle of Purim. This, this half-shekel idea, it's emblematic of the essence of the Yid. That he can't be more, that he can't be less. That's, at the end of the day, the Yid says, I can't live without a Jewish identity. That's not life for me. Either I'm living as a Yid in some way, or Lama Lichayim. What is life, what is life worth? What is the purpose of being able to go through the motions and just live if I cannot have my Yiddishkeit with me? And that, that, that was the act of Mesiris Nefesh. And when the Yidden had this act of Mesiris Nefesh and this kind of unity, this brought about the great miracles. So what does it mean for us in our day, my friends? It means that we have to find a way to get past all of our differences and all of the politics and all of the things that divide us. We are mefuzed and we're scattered and we're so divided, but ultimately we all agree on the certain essential things. We have to work on creating that commonality, on bringing forth that neshama. And if we create neshama experiences within the heart and soul of every single Jew, so then our Kaddish Baruch Hu helps you have a miracle. The truth is, Purim should be an easy sell. You don't have to starve. You don't have to sit in shul the whole day. It doesn't have to cost you a lot of money. Well, what do you ask? Okay, he sits in show for a half hour, 40 minutes, listens to the Megillah. That's difficult. There are more difficult things. Nobody's going to throw him out of show if he's playing Candy Crush while the Megillah is being read. Yeah. Now, really, how difficult is it? <laughs> okay, I didn't talk about Wednesday. I know you're fasting on Tennessee. Fine. But, 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 the, but the truth is, the notion of, 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 of keeping Purim, it should be something that every one of us could relate to. You're not even laying claim to a certain detail of a Yiddishkeit. You're rejoicing, a Yid on Purim says, I am happy to be a Jew. I'm proud and happy that I am a, a part of this nation. And that's something that every Yid should be able to relate to. So if we can get all the Yidin to relate to this, and if we get all the Yidin to participate and to celebrate Purim, then surely... HaKadosh Baruch would help us that just as we had Nisim and Floyds by Yom and just as there was great miracles in those days, that oh, God willing, it'll be Bizman Hazer, it'll be in our time also, and that we will overcome the modern day Hamans and Achashverishes and the whole motley crew of enemies that are arrayed against us, and together we'll see Yeshua's Vatzolas hopefully culminating in the return to Eretz Yisrael, Ladei Mashiach Sudkeinu Bimheda, Ubi Amenu, Amen.